Hi, everybody. Welcome in this uh, a broadcaster chat or reunion, as it were, bringing together a number of uh, broadcasters and personnel from uh, the Louisville baseball team, in this case, mainly the Redbirds past. I'm Nick Curran. Uh, thanks for joining us for this. Should be a lot of fun today. We've got uh, a number of folks with us uh, in this first of a couple of Zoom chats we're going to do today. First of all, the uh, man you see next to me here on the screen uh, started with the Redbirds in 1989, was here on a full-time basis all the way through the 2009 season before moving on to the Cincinnati Reds. He is uh, and a man who worked in the broadcast booth with everyone we're going to talk to, Jim Kelch joining us here and uh, had a chance to work with him last year uh, below him the man that has been with the Louisville baseball team the longest since 1984 in a number of capacities now the executive vice president of the Louisville bats it is Greg Galliette welcome Greg thank you for having me next to Greg down there we have uh, a man who worked in the Redbirds broadcast booth with Jim in the 1991 season now the television voice of the Houston Astros, Todd Callis. Todd, thanks for being Todd. here. <laughs> and at the uh, the bottom there, uh, he worked with Jim during Jim's first season uh, in the 1989 season and then the 1990 season in the Louisville Redbirds broadcast booth, of course, now with Fox Sports, Joe Buck joining us. Thanks, Joe. Joe. So want to start out by just kind of going uh, around the room here, and we can start with uh, – let's start with Greg, who – who joined the organization before anybody uh, back in 1984. How did you end up in Louisville? How did you first uh, join the Redbirds? Born and raised in Louisville, graduated the University of Louisville. Um, left the University of Louisville after graduating, went to work at Xerox, where every day was Groundhog Day. I could not <laughs> see myself doing that. Um, my uncle, uh, Dick Galliott, was the voice of Yale football for 33 years. Uh, also was on ESPN when they first came on the air back in the late 70s. Uh, his best friend was George Grand. Uh, he and George used to work at Channel 8 over in New Haven. So uh, sports had always been a big part of my family. I had to find a way to get into it. So I started pestering A. Ray Smith, who had just brought baseball back to Louisville in 82. And uh, I guess I finally wore him down. He gave me a job as an intern. Um, I took a massive pay cut. Everybody in my family and everybody at work thought I was an absolute idiot for doing it. I was just getting married and uh, I'm still here. So uh, <laughs> seen a lot of bad minor league baseball. I've seen some good minor league baseball. And uh, the best thing is I've gotten to know and, and develop relationships with all these guys that are on this screen and other folks. Uh, we've been very fortunate. We had a lot of top flight professionals come through organization and it's been a great run. And Hopefully I can make it last a little bit longer. Maybe who knows, they'll bury me out in center field here at Louisville Slugger Field. <laughs> the headstone might get in the way. Uh, <laughs> Start Jim, our own monument park. Yes, yeah. I like it. Jim, we'll go to you. Go to you. Uh, let's see. I was in Chattanooga at the time in, in 88 and was happened to be in Atlanta at the winter baseball meetings. And as I was getting ready to leave, someone said, hey, you know, there's a job opening in Louisville. I didn't know anything about it. I called up there and, and talked to Mary Barney, who everybody knows. And uh, she subsequently talked to Dale Owens. And uh, uh, they were making a change at the time, going from a, a seasonal broadcaster to a full-time person that would also sell and broadcast, which is what I had been doing in Chattanooga. So uh, I got my stuff up there. And I think, Greg, it was actually you who, yep. who listened to it first and, and forwarded it on as one of the, quote, finalists. And uh, I think it was in January of 89 that I got a call from Dale and said, hey, we'd like to bring you up here for the job. And uh, I was thrilled to get out of Chattanooga, nothing against uh, that town, but uh, a little bit too far south for me. And uh, so Louisville ended up being a great spot. And uh, Lord knows I spent enough time there. Indeed, and then, and then had a chance to be back last year. Uh, Joe, you, you joined the, the Redbirds the same year as Jim. We'll go to you next. Man, it was crazy. Um, I, I look back and, and I could give a seminar on what Jim Kelch and Greg Galliette and everybody down in Louisville really means to me personally and uh, professionally. I think maybe even more personally because I showed up and I was 19 years old. I was still going to college in Indiana, which was, uh, I'm not that great with geography, but oddly enough, not that long of a drive uh, somehow to Louisville, Kentucky. And by the way, I never mastered 
saying Louisville. I, I couldn't do it. I never tried to do it. I just stayed with Louisville. And uh, I, I mean, people knew I was from St. Louis, I think. Uh, so I showed up there as a kid. In fact, the funny story that Jim and I were talking about the other night is I was so friggin' nervous or dumb that when we had the introductory press conference, I just met him, just met Jim when we were walking up to the thing and introducing ourselves. And I think I started by saying, you know, I'm really excited to work with Jim Kirch. I, I totally screwed up his name. <laughs> you did. Um, and, and I think that was nerves uh, more than stupidity, but uh, a mix of both. But I think back on that time when I was 19, I was also somehow weirdly the traveling secretary, and I, which was an odd job for a 19-year-old to be handing meal money to Leon Durham, who, you know, would play Major League Baseball, playoff baseball, and had a hell of a career, and got Terry Francona. We had a fun team that first year, but for Jim to be as great as he was to me, and I'm anxious for Todd to, to talk about it as well, but... You know, I had no business being there. I was there because I was Jack Buck's kid. It was like kind of a stunty kind of a thing to be the second fiddle to Jim. And, but, but he made the experience so great, and I was so on my own. He and his wife, Diane, welcomed me into their family. I didn't live far away from them. Uh, and if that experience had not been as great as it was, and it was great being a broadcaster there, who knows, you know, if, if I get soured on the profession or being a baseball announcer or anything, but he didn't know me anything. Uh, they didn't know me anything. And, and they are two of the most fun years I've ever had in my life, let alone broadcasting. But I owe so much of whatever I've been able to do since then to that guy in, in the second from the far right box, as I see it, Jim Kelch, not Jim Kurtz, but Jim Kelch. He's a wonderful <laughs> human. Yeah, a hell of a broadcaster, but a good, a good man. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done nothing but root for the guy and, and uh, just been in awe of, of the way he welcomed me ever since. By the way, Joe, Bull Durham is now with us again as our hitting coach. <laughs> really? Yeah, he hasn't changed. The best, the best thing about Leon was our manager was Mike Jorgensen. Yep. His nickname was Jorgie. But he called him Jurgy. I think he thought Mike Jorgensen was Sonny Jurgensen. I'll tell you a quick Mike Jorgensen story before we go to Todd. I'm up there in the press box one night running the uh, sound cart, and a uh, uh, pitcher of ours is just getting drilled. Jorgy comes out to take him out. I pop in. I think it's the song, You've Got Problems or something, I've Got Some or whatever. Uh, I get a phone call like 20 seconds after Jorgy gets to the dugout. Don't you ever play that you blank, blank, blank song ever again and slams the phone down. So, Jorge was, was quite a character. Yeah, he, he was. was Ex-military guy, so you knew yeah. it. Yeah. And, and Bull still, uh, with the nicknames, maybe not quite on the person's actual name a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. That is still actually a thing. Uh, Todd, you joined the, the Redbirds the year after Joe left, I guess, in 1991. How did you come to Louisville? Yeah, I was uh, I was down in Florida actually working in Clearwater for three years as a kind of a sports director doing a little bit of everything. I did some pregame postgame stuff for the Bucks, did some Florida State League games, did a lot of high school work. Actually covered a shuffleboard tournament once, which I don't think anybody else has on their resume, so I've got that. Oh, one. Um, worked with Kirch Kelch uh, that first year, and it was awesome. It was really cool. I didn't have any, you know, I did some Florida State League games. I think I did a few Reading Phillies games right out of college. Hadn't done a full season anywhere. To have that opportunity, Lee Thomas at the time was working for the Phillies, longtime um, GM and a front office guy with the Cardinals, got into Philadelphia. He told my dad about this opportunity that Joe had just left. Uh, dad knew that somewhere down the road, baseball might be something I wanted to focus on, even though at that point in my career, I was doing a little bit of everything. So there I was in Louisville for 1991, a season where uh, they almost set the record for the most losses in the American Association, but uh, it was a great learning ground. And uh, from there, I was able to move on to, to the major leagues. So it was awesome. You know, the story goes, Todd, that uh, you were not invited back for 1992 because of the fact that the team only won 51 games. And maybe the fact that Mark DeJohn was the manager and he, we, nobody really got along with him very well, including the broadcasters. Mark never left his room. I mean, That's he, right. he had the, he was so miserable, he never left his room on any of the road trips, so we never got to really know him. Uh, I do remember at 51 and 92, in that 144-game schedule, 
I think there's about a 25% chance of rain in Louisville that yep, day. The last and game. About, about <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon, they're like, oh, there's a little dark cloud. We're, we're the game's off. We're like, not wow. setting that record. <laughs> not setting that record. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't mean to keep jumping in, but Greg's story reminded me of uh, my first year, Bob Tewksbury was pitching and uh, he drilled somebody. And I, I don't know if he got warned by the umpire, everybody got upset and I'm trying to diffuse it on the air in my own stupid way. And I said, you know, Hey, Bob Tewksbury doesn't throw that hard. <laughs> he you know, he's, he's not trying to hurt anybody and whatever. And so then I got that same thing. I got a call, Jim and I are doing whatever the next inning and I'm called to the main press box. And on the other end of the phone is Tukes, who is calling from, I assume, the clubhouse, not yep. the dugout. Yep. And he's like, if you don't think I throw hard, you grab the helmet and come down here tomorrow and I'll show you how hard I throw. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just trying to say you weren't trying to hurt anybody. <laughs> and uh, and the irony of it all is, if, if I have any really great friend to this day from that team, beyond the guys you see, it's, uh, it's Tukes because, you know, he then went to the Cardinals. I was with the Cardinals. I mean, one of the all-time great guys works now with the Red Sox and other teams as kind of a mental coach. And, I mean, he's just a wonderful human. And we laugh about that all the time. I mean, he was so mad. And I, I think it was just because he was at a fragile time in his career. And in his mind, he's thinking, well, I throw hard enough. And this 19-year-old broadcaster's ripping me up in the broadcast booth. And, that man, he let me have it. I tell you what, Joe, he was fun to watch because he worked quickly. The ball was always around the plate. Oh. Uh, you knew the game was going to be over in about two hours and 20 minutes, as opposed to now where it's three hours plus every night. It's a problem. I mean, and, and uh, you know, for Tukes to think that he came, he had been, uh, I believe, a Yankee and a Cub kind of farmhand. He was really well thought of. And then he, he had injuries and he lost a lot of his velocity. But that guy became a hell of a big league pitcher and yeah, was an all-star, I mean, for God's yeah. sake. So good on him. He, yeah. he took that opportunity and reinvented himself as kind of a trick shot guy that kept hitters off balance. And he was smart. And like you said, he was a joy to broadcast for because he just, he just got the ball and threw it. Did you ever make that same comment about Jamie Moyer? As far as <laughs> no, going salad? He probably would have called me and gone, <laughs> you know what? You're right. I, I throw about 81. Uh, yeah, go ahead and grab a helmet, probably rip one through the right side. You know what was amazing about Jamie is he was on that 91 team and he was 28 years old. He was kind of at a crossroads at that point. We talked a couple of times because my dad and his father-in-law were, were buds and, and uh, he, he honestly thought like this could be it. I, I might just focus in on being a dad and that's it. At age 28, who knew, 21 years later, he was still, it was amazing. Unreal, unreal. You know, we all have great memories of, of those years. And Joe, you were talking about uh, getting a call in, in the press box. And it reminded me of the time, and I don't remember both umpires, but I'm sure you're going to remember this story. Chuck I remember. I remember one of them. <laughs> Chuck Merriweather? I, I, go ahead. Anyway, <laughs> there was a situation. We were calling a, a game at Cardinal Stadium, and there's a bases were loaded and a little fly ball into shallow center. And the second base umpire goes running out to make sure the guy was going to catch the ball, which he did. And then the center fielder threw it back to second for the double play. And we said, uh, you know, he, he made an out call at second against the Louisville. And we said he was out of position. He, he could no way see that play at second base. And we thought we were being, you know, uh, uh, smart about everything. And we moved on. And the next morning, it was on a Sunday then, the next morning, Ron Schulte, uh, the security guy, comes up to the booth and says, hey, the umpires want to see you guys after the game. You remember that, Joe? Do I remember it? Yeah, I, I never needed a diaper at 19 until you and I walked into the umpire's locker room and it was Mark Hirschbeck is the, yes, guy, God. the other. He plastered you and me, but mainly me, uh, up against a wall because I think I was the one that was guilty of it and of saying that. And I remember it was Craig Wilson who was the runner at second base. Yes. I remember talking to him after the game. He's like, the umpire even told me you know, I blew that call. I was out of position, whatever. So I felt good when I went to bed. And the next day, you and I go down to the locker room. And he comes out of the shower with a towel on or they're getting dressed. And he's, like, in my face and verbally, if not, like, kind of physically pinning me up against the wall and 
And that was another time. I mean, you kind of stepped in there for me, Jim, because I, I was just like, I, I didn't even know what to say, but he was like, I don't know who you punks think you are. And I don't know, you know, you're just some low class AAA announcer <laughs> and I'm a part-time big leaguer and I'm going full-time to the big leagues and you'll be stuck down here the rest of your life. And, uh, and my God, you know, we both got to the, we all three got to the big leagues. And I, that, I don't remember a hell of a lot from that year, but I sure remember getting pinned up against the wall by Mark Hirschbeck. Let me say that again, Mark Hirschbeck. <laughs> I just remember uh, Hirschbeck, as you said, came out of the shower. But when we knocked on the door after the game, Chuck Merriweather, big, huge, you remember Chuck huge. Merriweather? Oh, yeah, big huge guy. guy. And he opens the door with no shirt on. And we say we're the Louisville announcers, and he turns and says, "Hey, Mark, your boys are here." Yeah, <laughs> we're like, <laughs> it's like right. dinner is served. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What it was. Yeah. Wow, uh, it's crazy. Chuck, Chuck was uh, working as as like a supervisor of umpires coming around, and uh, we would see him at the ballpark quite a bit. One of the all time nicest guys ever. It couldn't be nicer. And I think it was. I, I think he, you know of of that umpiring crew mark was going to be the heavy so to speak and he let us have it and it was i i don't think i've ever since really been pinned up against the wall verbally by anybody for anything i've said uh but i got a earful and faceful that day uh i'd be interested to hear the the thoughts on both todd and joe about when when you first saw cardinal stadium and because i know i had my thoughts on it too and and the, the press box, the bouncing press box. Remember that? Yeah. Go ahead, Todd. Uh, I just remember looking into the sunlight a lot. Yeah. The, the angle on the broadcast booth with the field, the way it was positioned. You, you, were, you were wearing shades a lot of times when you were calling games. And having lived most of my life in Tampa, Clearwater, St. Pete, and now the last three years in Texas, there's never been a hotter summer for me than my one year in Louisville. It was <laughs> so hot. I'm just glad I was 19 because climbing up those steps and across that catwalk and into the broadcast booth, like with that, whatever you call it, like corrugated, whatever, tin or whatever it was, it was covering the, the, the walkway. Um, Todd's right. I mean, it was just baking in that thing and, and muggy. And I, I actually think muggy was the name of uh, the lady that helped us with the airlines, Jim, right? That's Wasn't exactly her name? right. Muggy. And because her name was Muggy at the Louisville airport. And every time I would say the uh, the word Muggy, referencing the weather, Jim would say, oh, why do you bring up uh, her name? And I was just another inside running joke. I, we could do inside running jokes for the entire time we're on here, and not one person will get anything and, and tune this out. And, and uh, you guys used to go down, remember, to the, uh, to the dugout. We had that hookup for the postgame show. And sometimes you had to get the, uh, the visiting guy to come over from the other dugout to the, the, the Redbirds dugout. I know both of you used to say, hey, man, I don't want to do those guys. They don't want to come over there and sit in that dugout. Yeah, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't ideal, but it was a hell of a lot better than actually taping something and running it way back up there uh, <laughs> after the game. It way better. Couldn't email it back in those days. No, you couldn't. Hey, Greg, uh, you started '84 uh, Redbird. The franchise won its first championship that year. Uh, Vince Coleman, all that. What do you remember about about? That, that early season of you with the team. And the next year, and I'm thinking, geez, yeah. I'm in baseball two years and I got two rings. I mean, this is easy. And boy, it's been a long time between uh, drinks of water. But yeah, Vince Coleman, uh, I remember used to take his laundry for him over to Chris Cleaners over there on Crittenden Drive. And, uh, you know, he would barely tip me. And I remember the World Series, I ran into him in the lobby in St. Louis and he acted like he had never seen me before. Of course. Um, so. Yeah, you know, whatever. But then Vince was back here with us a couple of years ago. Uh, nice guy. We had him in here uh, as we paid recognition to him and, and Billy Hamilton. And uh, we had some great stories. But uh, Vince was a unique guy. Um, my fondest memories of those first years was just of A-Ray Smith. I was A-Ray's, I don't know what you call it, but I had to drive his LTD a lot of times to Hassan Hours for lunch and watch A-Ray basically eat a piece of lettuce and drink about six scotches. <laughs> And we would drive back on Eastern Parkway and he would take his hand and push my leg down on the accelerator and basically make me run red lights because he didn't <laughs> want to stop at any lights. He couldn't say my name. So he just called me Frenchy. Well, first of all, Ray, I'm Italian. I'm not French. 
And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, of course, Billy Martin and, and Mickey Mantle were good friends of his. And uh, I had to spend a week driving those guys around at nighttime. And, uh, of course, you know what kind of characters those two were. So they basically had no idea what city they were in. But, you know, it was some fun times. It really was. And uh, that stadium club, boy, that stadium club could tell some stories if it uh, could talk. Because there were some interesting events that went on in I was, there. I was just going to say, and, and some of, like, literally, I mean, Hall of Famers were coming oh. through there. I mean, you yeah. had, and then people from, you know, they were in Louisville that, that wanted to see a ball game or whatever. They'd come through there. It was it was like cheers, you know, like it, it was, it was a really comforting place to go after games. It really was. And Jim, I think a Ray's hall of fame dinner was the second largest gathering at that time of all the hall of famers besides the induction ceremonies. I remember one year we had 33 hall of famers at that event and they were all good buddies with a Ray. So you'd have Whitey Ford, you know, Satchel Paige. I mean, it was just nothing to have all these guys drop in, like Joe said, unannounced into Louisville and spend a day with you. So that was one of the perks of being a Louisville Redbird employee. Unfortunately, when, when I had started in 89, those dinners had been stopped yeah. and, and they didn't continue. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with Joe. The stadium club was a comforting place. You knew that no matter what time the game ended, I mean, it didn't matter if it ended at midnight or, or one in the morning, Danny Bannett would be down there behind yep. that bar in the stadium club. And remember, he used to let you run a tab like, uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll keep it on your tab. And at the end of the month, you were sure you owed $100. And he'd say, yeah, I think you owe me around 20 bucks. Yeah. yeah. What? Okay, oh, yeah. here's yeah. 20. Let's go. Yeah. Hey, did, by the way, did I mention I was 19 when I started? I, mean, I was <laughs> yeah. 21. I was definitely 21. What, what's the so statute of limitations things? on that? Yeah, it's way gone. I mean, one of the coolest things about Joe and my dad's generation was, and amongst other things, they had basically the run of the stadium media dining room after games, and they would hang out with scouts and other broadcasters and writers. It was normal for me and my brother and my mom to hang out after games for an hour and a half because that was just what dad did. He hung out and talked baseball. So for me to have that first full season in Louisville and have a stadium club to hang out afterwards, I'm like – this is like the big leagues. I'm ready to roll. I was and so fired up about that. You're so right. And the bigger point is when, when you're at Louisville, really anywhere, but certainly back then, the game was great, but it was about what went on around the game. And, and it, it was about the people you met and the hangout. And, and I feel like, and, and I don't do a team anymore, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. I just don't get the sense, and Todd and, and Jim, you can you can uh, speak to this probably better, but uh, really all three of you guys, I, I just I don't get the sense that 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 community feel is there anymore. It's like kind of everybody's on their own, and and you may hang with the person you do the game with, but as far as the bigger picture stuff, I, I don't feel like that's there anymore. That's a good point. It's become so corporate, especially at the major league level. Uh, it's almost sanitized, and you don't get that feeling. It's a shame because that's really what the, what the fabric of Major League Baseball was built on, was those relationships and all those great stories, and uh, it's kind of lacking now. Yeah, I can speak to that. I think the, the corporate feels here in Houston and probably with the majority of the, the other 29 teams in the Major League, the one kind of uh, the one kind of guy who, who brought that to a different level, I thought, for me, was Joe Madden and what he did in Tampa Bay. Yeah. He made everybody feel like they were all part of the same team, all the dress-up uh, theme trips, all the stuff he did in the clubhouse. So Joe kind of was the outlier during this current situation in Major League Baseball, but almost all Major League teams, yeah, feel so corporate. It is different than Joe talked about when we first started. And, and you know, in Louisville, it did stay that way through the years at Cardinal Stadium. I mean, even after you guys were gone and – into the, into the late 90s, uh, 97, 98, 99, those last years, even though the Cardinals had left, Milwaukee came in for two years, it still was a place to hang out. Gary Allenson was the manager for a couple of years and everybody, and that's the thing, I think what you guys are saying, it wasn't just the front office and the announcers and fans who would go in there, the manager, the coaches, the players, they all hung out in there and that's just where everybody went after the game. Mark Riggins, remember Mark Riggins was the pitching coach in those early years, and he was the pitching coach in St. Louis for one year. He was the pitching coach in Chicago a year. He was the pitching coach in Cincinnati uh, for a year. His <clears> wife, <throat> Pammy, unfortunately, who just passed away, she used to say to Diane all the time, whenever we'd see her, you know, our kids were raised in a bar. That's where they were <laughs> raised, at Cardinal Stadium, in that stadium club. And, you know, you yeah. put them in there and just let them loose and they'd run around yep. and do whatever. And then 
two hours later, you gather them up and say, come on, let's go. We're going home. Great daycare. Daycare. And Todd and Joe don't really know this, but Jim, you will. Uh, when we had our hockey team that we also ran with our baseball franchise for three years, uh, it was a routine thing. The entire hockey team would come over after games, home games, to the stadium club, and we'd be in there to some wee hours. And those hockey players, they could drink. And oh, yeah. it was some fun times. Todd, you know, sorry, Nick, I keep cutting you off. I know you're dying to jump back in. Uh, when, when, when you're with the Astros, I, I remember back when George Foster signed a deal with the Mets. I mean, this is ancient history, but it was like, you know, he had his own way to and from the ballpark. and It was like 25 different limos or whatever, however you want to say it. The point was nobody really hung out with each other. And I thought that was the outlier back then because everybody did kind of want to make, keep it a community. I think there was more trust between player and a representative of the media. If, if you want to, I mean, I was, I always felt, you know, I'm sure they didn't, but I always felt like I was part of the team. I got a bunch of crap on HBO when I was interviewed and I said, I I'm not a journalist when I'm the day-to-day -day announcer for back then the St. Louis Cardinals. There's stuff I know that guys are doing that helps me to have a little bit of background for what they're going through or, you know, maybe a reason for something happening, but I'm not there trying to break stories. The first time you break that trust, you're dead and, and you, you might not get hired ever again. That's not your role. So I think there was more trust back then, but I'm wondering with today's player in your experiences, because again, I'm not doing the day to day. Does it feel like it did back then? Or is it more like games over and everybody just kind of scatters and then they trickle in at different times and then they scatter after games is, is it different that way um no I think and this Astros team uh is pretty close and they actually in, in this day and age it's not about going out as much as it's about hanging out in the hotel and playing Fortnite like it's crazy how many of the guys on the team play Fortnite and then talk about it on the way to the ballpark the next day about who should have won this game or that game uh but they're really close but I, when we were talking about corporate earlier I, I just feel like the overall mentality of the organization and it was a lot, you know, with the previous regime, I'm interested now with the new general manager in place, how that's going to play out. But there was a separation of classes more so uh, when Jeff Luna was here. A.J. Hinch, Joe, as you know, is always ready to give you as much information as possible, almost the too best. much. Yeah. The best, right? I'm going to miss A.J. tremendously. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so there's always, like, players did their thing. And this Astros team is incredibly close. They're as close of a team as I've been around. Um, and then you had, you know, broadcasters, training staff, other personnel, and then you had – front office everybody was kind of in their own lanes and that was different than it was in Tampa Bay when everybody was kind of all included in the same thing so so I got a question for for Todd and Joe because uh, and I want to harken back then to when you guys were in Louisville Joe you you had done virtually nothing in terms of play-by-play -play. you had done some stuff with your dad everybody knows the story about your 18th birthday when he threw you in at Shea Stadium and Todd you had been down in Florida but you really hadn't been doing play-by-play -play per se for a team so when you guys got to Louisville these were your first play-by-play -play jobs what do you remember about doing it on a day-to-day -day basis and thinking wow I didn't realize that it was going to be like this or this is harder than I thought or, this is easier than I thought what do you remember about getting your play-by-play -play careers started you know it felt I felt guilt I probably still do to this day being my dad's son because you do get so many advantages and yeah you also have a bigger microscope I think on you um, or telescope uh, and kind of judging you I think or maybe that's in my head too but I even at 51 you know which is ludicrous to think about I still think about that stuff and I, I thought about you having been in Chattanooga and working your way to AAA and then I parachute in and here I am starting at I would say the best AAA job in, in baseball I'd put it up against any uh, that were out there at the time. But I, I think that was proof to me and that was proof to my dad. In, in fact, he talked about this with other people. Uh, that's when you figure out if you love it. You know, it's one thing to be somebody's kid and hanging in the booth and being around. Who wouldn't love that? Who wouldn't love shagging fly balls and going on road trips and all that? But when you're actually doing the game night after night, hour after hour, that's when you figure out if you really love it, you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it because you enjoy, you know, you were a grown man and, and doing it for the money as well as, as the love of it. I was doing it because I just wanted to see if I, if I really liked it as much as I thought I did. 
and I did. And, and that's why I say, that's what I said at the beginning. I think if, if that experience had been less than what it was or sour, even worse, who knows what I end up doing. But I got down there, I was like, God, I, I loved it. I love being on the air. I love calling these games. I love working with somebody else. I love being around the players, but now it's kind of a professional and not as somebody's kid. So uh, I, I look forward to going to work every day. And, and that's, that was, I think, the big proving ground for that for me. Um, Todd, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I do. Uh, very similar thoughts, Phil. I, I had done a few games on TV. I just mentioned Florida State League and a couple of Reading Phillies games. Had never done any baseball on the radio, including college, even though I was at Syracuse. Uh, we did football, basketball, lacrosse, but there was no baseball to call. So I, we went to MacArthur Stadium a few times, sat in the stands or, or an adjacent press box booth and, and called games, and that was all I had done on the radio. So coming in, no radio experience doing play-by-play, and, uh, you know, just kind of followed Kelsey's lead. I do remember thinking, you know, the lower minor levels, everyone talks about how tough it is on the bus rides, eight-hour bus rides, 12-hour bus rides. I remember the, one of the early trips we had was going from Buffalo waking up at who knows what time in the morning, getting on a flight, going to Denver, playing the Denver Zephyrs that same day. And I'm thinking, man, those bus rides don't seem that bad because we're connecting <laughs> flights, we're getting in. I've been up for 12 hours already, and, and now we're getting ready to do a broadcast. I'm like, this is, this is no joke. So that was good learning grounds too because I, you hear about long bus rides at the lower levels of the minors. But those wake up, fly out to the next city days are not easy broadcasts either. I'm glad you brought up MacArthur Stadium because I – one of my memories, Todd, of you when, when we worked together in 91 was we were doing a game out in Syracuse. And after the game, we got together with a young guy who you had gone to college with. And he was just getting ready, I believe, to start a job at ESPN. His name was Mike Tarico, And you introduced us. We went to some outdoor bar, restaurant uh, type place. And he joined us and you introduced us. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm going to work at ESPN. Well, he's never changed jobs all these years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tariko and I were roommates for one year. And uh, I, we, everybody knew back then. We, I called him the mayor. I know that's Sean Casey's name. But I called him the mayor back then because he knew everybody on campus. He was so far above and beyond everybody else. And that's a pretty good school for, for developing uh, broadcast talent. But he was so far above everybody else. He had a, a gig his junior summer uh, working for the local CBS affiliate doing – uh, sportscast for them. So he was, you always knew he was on the fast track. So that was, uh, I'm glad I forgot about that story, but we, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And Joe, there was the, uh, you and I talked about this the other night, uh, the sunburn story. We each had a sunburn story from 1989. Mine, mine was in uh, uh, Tidewater where we, we laid out by the pool. And I got so crispy that I could barely move and yours was in Louisville when you went to a suntan booth, right? I mean, it's, it's easily the most <laughs> embarrassing story of my life. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, we're hitting all the high. We're hitting all the high. This is the greatest hits of, of Louisville in 89 and 90 for me. But I don't know which year it was. Uh, but I was trying to impress some girl down there. Imagine that. Yeah. And I thought, you know, hey, everybody looks better with a tan. So I uh, went to a tanning bed. It was, I mean, my, I, I found out through 23andMe or one of these like ancestry things that I'm like 90 plus, like 93% Irish. And if I didn't know it through the test, I knew it after being in the tanning bed. Cause I remember the person working at the, at the counter going, Hey, we just put new bulbs in there. Be careful. I'm like, well, fine. Sign me up for 30 minutes. I came out of there like lobster and I was in so much pain and it sounds so babyish and wimpyish that I'm like, Kelch, I can't do the, I can't even move. Like I'm, I'm asking, you know, there's no Google back then. I'm calling people like, how the hell do you get the edge off this? And other than drinking, uh, it was like, you know, bathe in baking soda and you know, aloe aloe and tear the head off a bat or something and, and I, I was uh, Easy doing there. my best yeah I started not a river bat or whatever you go uh, <laughs> so I I was like I can't do it and and you called Ed Peak right? oh no Peake, his the, name pops up the the team was in Nashville and I was supposed to join them and get on the bus or whatever and go to Nashville. I was like, I'm calling timeout. It's the only game I ever missed. However, 
Ed Peak had his grand debut on Wave 970. They get to Nashville. I'm tuning in, like, freaking out, like I'm missing a game for a sunburn, and the game gets rained out. They never played the game. So I still have, like, a 100% record of never missing a game. But, God, that's just so freaking embarrassing. Ed had a two-inch file of prep work. He was all ready to go for the one game in Nashville, and it all got tossed out because yeah. he didn't get to do the game. Uh, poor Ed. <laughs> hey, Greg, you were telling me, speaking of Ed, uh, about some two-on-two hoops. The infamous two-on-two game with Kelch, Joe, Ed, and myself. Was it at your apartment complex, Joe? I think so, yeah. Um, we, so Ed, Ed, Ed comes out there. He's got his coach's shorts on. He's got his really socks up to his knee. And he and I take on the two broadcasters. And uh, it was a battle royale. And, uh, I, I think it's fair. My only recollection is I think Ed leaned on you uh, to kind of carry the two-man team. If, if well, I, I did a little Michael Jordan routine there. Yeah. But uh, oh, just when Ed came over and got out of that car the way he was dressed, it was hilarious. <laughs> I think he had – yeah, he had those coaches' shorts on, those Sansa belts with those socks way up to his knees. That Kelly Trapuca used to wear, you know, yeah, that bike high. short. They're bike coaches' bike. shorts. <laughs> those are beauties, yeah. I think we won the game, didn't we, Joe? Uh, no, that's that's no. my memory. No. I think we dominated. I don't even think they scored a point. I think the net had to be replaced. I was having so much fun just dropping uh-huh. pieces on you guys. He didn't say. take his shirt off and recreate, like, the Along Came Polly scene, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was the only rule. Nobody, except Greg, nobody could take their shirt off. Nobody dared take their shirt off. Hell no, I still don't take my shirt off. All right, let, let's let's get on to the subject we all know very well, and that's Mary Barney. We all, I'm sure, got some great Mary Barney stories we can share. Uh, clean ones. Uh, you know, we used to call her the queen all the yep. time because, uh, well, she kind of ran the show, and uh, anything baseball, particularly back in those days with the Cardinals, anything baseball oriented went through Mary Barney. And so if you wanted anything done, you went through her and she would give you the old honey with that cigarette hanging out of her hand. And uh, you would, you could sweet talk Mary though, and and, uh, get done what you wanted to get done. You guys remember uh, much about Mary? Todd, Joe? She she was queen bee before Beyonce, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do I? Yeah, I, to me, she was like, a, as a kid, I, she was like a friendly face. She was somebody that when you walked in the office, uh, again, I keep saying comforting, but I can only tell you how out of my element I felt when I started there. So seeing Mary, who I had met with my dad prior to actually coming there to work. I mean, he, my dad was another Greg, A. Ray Smith guy. Yeah. Um, so I had been around there, but obviously wasn't working there. And so seeing her and just knowing kind of where she sat. Yeah, she had the keys to the kingdom. She knew where all the skeletons were buried. She knew that if you wanted to get something done, she also knew that you had to kind of go through her to get it done. So uh, there was great value in that position, but one of those people that uh, was kind of irreplaceable as far as, as far as I was concerned after uh, leaving for, you know, leaving after a couple of years. I mean, every scout, every person that had a high-level major league or minor league job that came into our stadium always came, first of all, to visit Mary in our office. And uh, Joe and Todd, to let you guys both know, we now have our, actually our MVP award every year named after Mary Barney. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So we thought it was fitting to do that. Oh, Greg, cool. uh, I-, I was telling Nick this story the other day regarding 1989, and the, the very first game of that year was not – well, the first game of the regular season, we were in Buffalo, but we had that exhibition game between yep. the Reds and the Cardinals. I have a picture, and again, I, I, I showed it to Nick. I sent a copy of it to Nick um, that was hanging on the wall in the old stadium club that was from that first exhibition game in 89. Whitey Herzog in the middle. On his right was Red Shane Deeds. On his left was Jack Buck, and they were there to do the game, yep. and that picture was taken. And it, I always loved that picture because it was the very first game at the AAA level I ever worked. There it is, right there. Yeah, yep. there it is. And you and, and I had breakfast that morning. Guys. You and, and I had breakfast that morning. In the stadium club for all those years. And then when the stadium club, uh, when the team moved downtown, I always told Mary that if I ever left, with a big underline on if, I wanted that picture. 
And I'll be darned that when I did leave, Mary got me that picture. So I have it hanging here in my office. So that, I, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm going to get every detail of this wrong. And I may have been there before I started broadcasting. But whatever year Pete Rose got busted, before betting on, it was 89. It was that year, right? And the Cardinals are playing the Reds uh, in an exhibition game. And I remember the day the story broke about Pete in spring training and Pete was a beauty, obviously, and, and kind of unaware of, of the depth of the offense and the, the seriousness of it. I mean, he's got reporters just all over him at Alang Stadium, and he's yelling to Shannon, Mike Shannon, uh, longtime voice of the Cardinals, and my dad, like on the outskirts of this scrum, because this whole thing kind of came out of nowhere. And he said, hey, uh, Jack and Mike, you know, when we play that – Meanwhile, he's talking about gambling and all that. When we play that uh, exhibition game in Louisville, I'll get us a helicopter. We'll fly over to Churchill Downs. And, you know, it was that's all he cared about. He's like, yeah, so what are your questions? And I was just stunned that it was like, uh, do you realize that uh, this probably isn't a good thing right now to be yelling out to the media? I mean, it was a different time, but that all has stuck with me. Self-awareness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before we let you guys go, talking to Jim as well, um, does anybody remember any uh, any vocal disagreements with scoring decisions from your years oh, working gosh. with Jim? <laughs> anybody? I mean, I, I was telling Nick, I was basically the official scorer a lot of those years because I would complain and bitch so much to the official score about it, they ended up just looking at me and, just, and saying, what do you think it is? So you <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about back then? You're doing it last year or two in our press box. It hasn't I may have done it once or twice. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, thing, it was just a little less rigid back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And it was, it was literally like they'd call up from the dugout and complain. Yeah. And now – don't get me wrong, that happened in the big leagues too, by the way, uh, because if you're taking a hit away from somebody or, you know, all of a sudden unearned runs become earned runs for a pitcher, whatever it might be, they're not happy and they're not scared to voice their displeasure. I mean, it's not a perfect system and, and these rulings are not handed down by God. So there's a person there going hit or error and it changes stats for everybody. Uh, so that was always, I, I just, Jim was kind of the representative, uh, for, from our booth to go over and say, come on, what is, what are you, Brooks Robinson scoring over here? You can't make that play. That's a base hit. Okay. Hey, hey let me bring this up because I want to see what you guys think of this. Do you remember the, the place in Buffalo that we, we stayed at the holiday in downtown, which really wasn't in downtown Gabriel's gate. I was just going to say that. You remember that you guys? I do, and anybody I meet from Buffalo, it's to this day, I've said it within the last calendar year because we would go to Buffalo to play the Bisons. And uh, I, to me, at that point, I didn't even really, hadn't really heard much about chicken wings or yeah. uh, buffalo wings. And they're called buffalo wings for a reason. They're not from Buffalo, they're from chickens. I never really put that together. So it was like a Buffalo, New York thing. And there was this place, Gabriel's Gate, that had great cold beer and like literally the best uh, chicken wings I've eaten to this day. And yeah, so anybody I, I meet from Buffalo, I'm like, is there a place that you know of called Gabriel's Gate? It probably, you know, who knows if it was any good. But uh, man, it sure as hell tasted good back in 89 and 90. I remember taking both of you guys there when we first went to Buffalo. You remember it, Todd? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I'd gone to school at Syracuse, so I'd heard about the, the Buffalo Wings, but I'd never partaken. So that was awesome. Yeah. I, I, I have a good story from 91 because I remember uh, Joe was talking about learning from Kelchi. And we had a pitcher back then, Kelchi. I don't know if you, you probably remember him. He's a lefty who had been in the big league for a little while, kind of a journeyman. Stan Clark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Clarky was on the 91 team, and Clarky had this incredible fear of flying. Like he couldn't. He would like he would grip harder on those arms rest than any player I've ever seen in my life, and so we were having a terrible year as we already talked about the '92 losses, and somehow you know in the rotation every once in a while Clarky's turn would come up when we were flying that day. He was gassed by the time he landed because of his fear of flying, and then he'd have to pitch that night. And Kelchi had the inning when Clark was giving up rocket after rocket after rocket. Finally, he's pointing to his arm. He's like, "I got nothing," and nobody 
comes out from the dugout to talk to him because their bullpen was trash at that point. They couldn't go to anybody in the bullpen. Finally, as the inning continues, he's giving up more and more runs. He's whistling into the dugout, total <laughs> anarchy, like, get me out of the game. And Kelchie's, it was Kelchie's inning, and he handled it so well. He's just like, I think Clark's showing a little fatigue on the mound right now. And I would have been like, he is completely, he doesn't care about his manager. He is completely trying to take himself out of this game. You remember that, Kelchie? I do remember that, and uh, it's, yeah, he was. He was deathly afraid of flying. Uh, my, my best memory of Stan Clark, though, was, and I think, Todd, you were there with me. I think it was you and I and Scott Arnold and Stan Clark playing golf on that inner nine at the Indianapolis 500. Oh, yeah, North. yeah. And if you didn't hit the ball off the tee out of the box, you had to walk to the ball and hit it again with your pants down. Well, Stan Clark hit the ball and didn't get it past the tee. So here he goes, drops his trousers to his to his shoes, and here he walks up to the ball and just hits it away. The guy was uh, he was he was out there now. He's the didn't guy that introduced me to playing golf. I, Todd, the last time you and I saw each other was in Houston at Lock and Bar. I was down there with a buddy, and uh, I really hadn't played golf before I was in Louisville, and it was Stan Clark uh, that that I don't know. I mean, he was deathly afraid of flying. He was left-handed. I know three things yeah. about Stan. Left-handed, definitely afraid of flying, and loved to play golf. And and so that he was he was my entree to the great game that I still am obsessed with today. So I owe him something for that. But that is that's amazing. That's like Bull Durham, Todd. Like oh yeah, a guy literally whistling into the dugout like, hey, what are you leaving me out here to die? I, yeah, it's crazy. Kelchi was uh, Stan the guy that uh, disrobed at our team golf outing at Neville Mead. Also. No. No, I know it? who that was. That was Claude Osteen's son. Oh, that's right. Dave Osteen. Yes. Dave Osteen. Yeah. All he had on was his golf shoes. Yeah, playing 18 with his golf shoes only. He probably lost a bet to Stan Clark doing that. That's why. I think Stan, <laughs> yeah, I think Stan was in his group. Because we were hearing about it a couple of holes ahead. you got to go back here. I mean, he has no clothes on. So that first year, though, you talk about, like, kind of characters. That first year we had on our team bus, I think they, yeah, they were there together. Terry Francona, one of the most, nat to this day, one of the most naturally funny people. He's kind of like a latter-day euchre to me. Like, he's just got such a unique take. Yeah. That everything he says is hilarious, even now. And uh, Jim Pusey, the catcher, was like a backup catcher to Zeal. And Pusey was like his foil. And they would go at it on the buses. Like, it, it, it literally, you couldn't write better material if you were doing Bull Durham part two. It, it was just like cry in your seat listening to these two guys go at it. And that's what made it fun. And that's why I kind of reference that feeling of community, you know, even between player and broadcast. So they weren't worried that anything they were yelling at each other was going to get out on the air. And that's when you kind of learn there's stuff that goes on over here. And then there's the stuff that you know and you learn that goes out over the air. And uh Man, it was just a, it was hilarious. They were two of the fine remain, two of the funniest guys I've ever been on a bus with. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, really appreciate you guys' time. Don't want to keep you too long, but maybe go around one more time and just uh, kind of wrap uh, your time in, in Louisville. I know we've been doing it a little bit throughout this, but uh, your time here and any any kind of lasting takeaways from from your time as a as a as a Louisville broadcaster or or a well if you're still employed by uh, the Louisville team as you are Greg we can we can start with you as someone that's that's been in the organization the longest well as I said earlier just getting the opportunity to, to meet and, and and develop relationships with guys like these three great guys uh, uh, the great stories we just heard today I mean uh, it's been fantastic to get to know them and I wish them nothing but the best as they go forward and uh, they're certainly a big part of my memories here working in professional baseball, and, and I wish them nothing but the best. Hey, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, never in my wildest dream did I think I would spend 21 years in Louisville, and at the time, I, I maybe resented it a little bit that I thought I was there too long. But as I look back at it now, uh, I loved our time in Louisville. Two of our kids still live in Louisville, so we're down there a lot. And uh, going back last year with you, Nick, was, was, was really fun. It was, it was uh, intimidating, I think, at, at first. When I first went back into the stadium after not being there and working, it was a little strange for me, but uh, you made it very comfortable. And, and some of the greatest baseball memories that I have involve the Redbirds and the Bats and those 
years that I spent there. And so uh, it, it, I treasure them. I really do. Go ahead, Todd. Um, yeah, for me, yeah, that was, it was the start of what has been, I've been blessed to be in the major leagues ever since, but that was the start of my broadcasting career and I'll never forget it. I, I, I still think about, I can name pretty much that entire 91 team right now. And there's our other teams that I've worked with that I'm like, is that guy on the 05 or the 06? Like, you know, they all run together, but that 91 team, I'll remember forever. I'll remember uh, always working with Kelchi and, and we've been uh, friends ever since. We've been crossing paths uh, just recently uh, when we played in Cincinnati. What was the last year, Kelchi? We had lunch yeah. together. So yeah. um, memories that last a lifetime. I really appreciated the time I had there. Good to talk about uh, Mary Barney and Ed Peak and, and H, uh, you know, all the great characters at the Cardinal Stadium through the years. Yeah, and I said it before, and I'll say it again, because I, I, I've said it many times without these people on a Zoom call that I owe everything to my start there. And it wasn't just uh, my relationship with Jim and him really taking me under my wing. And, and for the most part, he was my real first broadcast partner. And, you know, I, my dad gets a lot of credit, even my mom in certain circles, you know, making me who I am. Jim, really, in, in many instances, is is the reason that I've been able to uh, to go on and do some of this stuff. So I, at some point, somebody had to agree at Louisville to take on a 19-year-old kid uh, because he was Jack Buck's son. And, and so somebody said yes. And whether that's uh, Ed or Dale, anybody, anybody in, in the front office there, I'm, I'm indebted to. And I, I often think of, of not just the fun stories that we've talked about today, but even the people that you would say hi to that were the lifers down there, the fans that lived and died with yeah. then Louisville Redbirds baseball and saying hi to the same people night after night going up and, and learning how to broadcast. Uh, man, it, it just could not have happened in a better place. I, I was just blessed and uh, it, it was the foundation for everything I've done since. A lot of great memories. It's been a ton of fun for me to sit here and listen to all this. I hope everyone uh, that is tuned in has enjoyed it. Uh, big thanks to everyone. Greg Galliette, Jim, Ker Jim Kelch, Ooh, Todd Gallis, and, and, and <laughs> Jim Clutch. Uh, yeah, if I <laughs> echo everything Jim said about last year, that was amazing and a, a pleasure to work with you too. But uh, thanks you guys so much. Hope everyone's enjoyed it and uh, uh, we'll see you down the road. Yeah, let's hope. Let's Take care, guys. Best of luck to you all. See you guys. Yes. Stay healthy, bye -bye. everyone.